want wisdom. Father, we need you this morning. We love you. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Alrighty. So for the next handful of weeks, we're going to be looking at the five solas, the five onlys of Scripture. Uh, here's what they are, and then we'll unpack them kind of one by one uh, each week to discover the significance of it. Uh, the, the five solas was a, a term used to designate the five great foundational truths that, uh, that became rallying cries from the Protestant reformers back in the Middle Ages. Sola is Latin for only or alone or solely. Um, so here they are. They're sola scriptura, which, which means scripture alone. Sola gratia, meaning grace alone. Sola fide, meaning faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. Uh, there was a, a tongue-in-cheek movement on behalf of millennials just recently uh, that tried to add a sixth sola. And the sixth sola would have been sola fields. <laughs> For, because it's trendy to place an enormous amount of emphasis on my fields. What I'm feeling these days. It didn't pass muster. We ended up with only five souls, okay? Uh, now, without any background on this, uh, some of us might say, well, why, why is that so important? What's, what's the big deal? Well, these things were important enough for people to sacrifice their lives for. We don't realize sometimes the importance of these things because we don't realize that these five things get attacked all the time, all the time. Either directly or indirectly, these absolutes of Scripture come under fire from within and without on a regular basis. And to get off track on one of them will lead to eventually getting, on, getting off track on all of them. It's just a matter of time, and a crash will be coming. It's a matter of certainty. So today we're going to go back in history to the Middle Ages and see how and why these five solas came about, and the price that was paid to clarify this for future generations, including all of us who sit in this room today. So I'll start by saying this. The, the Middle Ages, the years from the collapse of the Roman Empire until the Renaissance, are years which are largely clouded in myth and misunderstanding. Uh, so in order for us to get a, a, a grip on the significance of what God did then, we have to get a better picture of the world in that day. The, the Roman Empire dominated at that time. It extended from the northern forest up in Germany all the way westward to England, which had been thoroughly Romanized by that time. Uh, the empire stretched from India all the way over to Arabia. Uh, Israel had become the Roman province of, of Palestine at that time. And Pax Romana prevailed. That was the worldwide peace that was brought about by the authority or the tyranny of Rome, depending on how you looked at Rome at that time. When the Roman Empire collapsed, a massive vacuum of power and order was felt. And there was a sense in which people crave order and security, even the security of a dictator. It might not be great, but it's better than worldwide chaos and lawlessness. So with the collapse of the Roman Empire, there was a rise of a, a medieval infrastructure to take its place. Some refer to this, this period as the time of feudalism, like feuds, feudalism. Basically, it was the, the rise of city-states that seem to be constantly at war with, with one another. It's kind of a funny example, but one that 
lot of us are familiar with. If you ever saw the classic film, The Princess Bride, anybody see The Princess Bride? This is a perfect example of feudalism. And it's inconceivable. <laughs> but it was this, this was feudalism at its best. One, it was one little kingdom making war with another little kingdom, attacking each other and kidnapping princesses and hiring swordsmen and giants to help you. That last part might just be Hollywood. Okay? But in the absence of Roman rule, feudalism gave them some sense of order. Wasn't much, since unprovoked attacks and raids came by these roving bands of mercenaries and Vikings and Goths and visit all it was just it was difficult in that time. In 622, in 622, Islam arose in Arabia, and now there's this increasing threat of attack at any time. The Islamic military was surging through the, the European continent in the wake of the Byzantine Empire that was crumbling at that time. So attack could come at any time from any angle without any warning. These small armies of marauders would just come and plow <coughs> through villages, raping and pillaging and leaving nothing behind but a trampled nightmare. Life in continental Europe on the end of the 11th century was a bleak, bleak existence. And among other troubles, it was the end of public education. Because in these feudal kingdoms, out of the few three, four, five hundred that might live there, there might be one or two that could read or write. Like one or two. And then, right behind that comes the bubonic plague, the, the Black Death. If you can even imagine this, in five years' time, 25 million people died. One-third of Europe's population. So you're just surrounded by suffering and death. You've all heard that little nursery rhyme, uh, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. That came out of the bubonic plague. The children made up this creepy little rhyme based on the fact that one out of three of their playmates would die. I ring around the rosy because the first sign of the plague was a red rash or a red ring around the waist uh, or wrist or waist or even around your neck. Pocket full of posies. They were flowers that relatives and parents would carry in their pockets to mourn the dead. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. It must have seemed that way to them. Just left it. One third, imagine one third of this, this whole block right over here just died. It was like someone in every household was dying. It was a fight just to survive in this time of war and famine and plague, pestilence, terror, ignorance. It was just global uncertainty. So in a time and a situation like that, there was always seems to be something that rises up to fill the void. And there, there were some things, three things, three significant things that rose to gain popularity and gain attention at that time. The first was the rise of European nationalism. And that, I say that to say this, there had never really been a nation of Germany, a nation of France, a nation of England at that time. But the idea of having a national identity was starting to gain hold. And a good example of this is the Hundred Years' War, the war between England and France. Although there was no official country of France or England at the time, their identity was strong enough to fight for. And this was a bloody conflict that raged not just, think about this, not just year after year, but generation after generation. Imagine a war where a father, a son, a grandfather,
grandson and a great-grandson all fought in the same war. It's incredible. You might remember the story of Joan of Arc. Um, that took place, her life and that whole episode took place during the Hundred Years' War. She was supposedly burned at the stake for religious heresy. She wasn't, she wasn't killed for heresy. She was killed because the French rallied around her to kick the English out of France. She was killed by the English. I mean, her words were, she said, I will not rest until the English are kicked out of France. Guess it's heresy if you're English. <laughs> so first there's this rise of European nationalism. The second thing that rose up was the emergence of a middle class. In the, the Middle Ages, there were some people that kind of hacked their way out of serfdom and gradually became merchants. And uh, this merchant class was established, sort of became a way for people to arise out of the peasantry that they've known their whole lives and give them a chance to become merchants and maybe a little bit better in, in experience than they had in the past. And the third thing was the rise of a powerful Roman church. And this might be the most difficult to wrap our brains around. Because the church at the time represented a stabilizing influence in society. It represented the possibility of maintaining at least some level of education. At least, at least there was somebody who could read, someone who understood that there was such a thing as books, and someone who saw the need to preserve art or music at the time. So as people began clinging to the church as a stabilizer in society, the church moves into a time of tremendous influence and power. And as they became more powerful, unfortunately, they became more corrupt. I mean, horribly corrupt. And what could have been a time when the church could provide sound godly teaching and hope and be a source of light to an extremely dark world, instead they fall into greed and manipulation. Please understand that what I'm, what I'm going to say is by no means anti-Catholic. It's just, it's just a simple historical account of the Roman Church of the Middle Ages. It's not revelation, it's not opinion, it's just history, okay? By the 13th century, the papacy in Rome had become so morally corrupt that there was a 60-year period called the pornocracy, which is obviously a combination of two words, the papacy and pornography. This period was so corrupt and evil that it seemed like society itself was up for grabs. There were three popes in a row that were poisoned. Three in a row. The one pope was the grandson of another pope, which is interesting because popes are supposed to be celebrated. <laughs> parents of boys who were called into the Vatican to serve as all parents, the parents would mourn and weep and sometimes even attempt suicide because they knew how boys were treated and uh, used and abused in the Vatican. Then in the 70 years following the pornocracy, the, the papacy was so fractured that the power seat was not even in Rome anymore, but it was in Avignon in France. So there's the Pope is in France, but there's two, three other men all claiming to be popes at the same time. It was just, it was a world in disarray. Okay, so in that season of time, a baby is born to Hans and Margareta Luther. And they didn't want their son Mark, uh, Martin to grow up in their tradition of being coal miners. They wanted him to be educated and move up. And he did. He was educated. He went through university. and was going on a law school in 1505. It's there at Strattenheim, something happened that began to change not only Martin Luther, 
but really began to change the course of human history. And the episode was he's walking through this huge thunderstorm. There's lightning bolts hitting all around him. Martin Luther falls down to the ground and he cries out for help to St. Anne. St. Anne is not a biblical figure. She's traditionally understood to be the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So he cries out, save me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Well, why does he call it the St. Anne? Well, St. Anne, he had learned that she's the patron saint of coal miners. Coming from a coal mining family, that's just what he understood. Well, why does he say he's going to become a monk? Monks were seen at that time as the last vestiges of authentic spirituality. The New Testament church was so far removed from regular life that people no, no longer really experienced a personal relationship with God. I mean, it had been now 1,400 years since the book of Acts and the early church and the dynamic uh, walk with God that those people had. And so monks, because the world was so different now, they retreated from public life. They retreated from much of public church, probably just to keep their sanity. So now here's this frightened but sincere young man Educated, idealistic, really wants to please God. And now he becomes a monk. Now, in this season of life, remember, the church is more of a power broker than a spiritual guide. And the Bible is not in the language of the people. It's in Latin. Now, why is that? Because the church saw an opportunity to lay hold of an old Roman power form by holding on to its language. Latin. So the Bible's in Latin, the church services are in Latin, but the people, the common people, don't speak Latin anymore. They speak German or French or Gaelic or whatever. So the church, the church owns for itself the, the Roman Empire's language. So they become the Roman Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, the Roman Catholic Church. And in order to keep its power, the church separates people from the heart and soul of religion. Here's what that says. In essence, they're saying to people, you don't need a relationship with God. You just need to do what the church says. You don't need to read the Bible. We'll tell you what the Bible says. You don't need your own faith in God. You just need to believe in the church. Do that and you're fine. If you don't, you're damned. That's the stranglehold they have on people. Now, in that kind of setting, you can imagine how strange things can get when you're dealing with peasants who not long ago were worshiping tree gods. Now they're being told to observe a religion that they really don't know much about and don't fully understand. They're taught all about these different saints that they're supposed <laughs> to pray to. Doesn't sound all that different from the pagan gods of the Black Forest. And it just develops this sort of weird spiritual syncretism, this syncretism which is the fusing of different ideas together. So the common people are having a hard time making a distinction between Saint Anne and the tree god of the Black Forest. And the church finds that that suits their purposes just fine to allow these superstitions to exist. What do they care what the common man believes as long as they come to church? They don't care if you sacrifice the chickens in the backyard as long as he's there on Sunday and do what we say. So this is the world they're in. And in the midst of all that, Martin Luther enters the monastery. And this begins not a real positive but an excruciating time in his life because he's so driven by works trying desperately to please a God that he thinks is impossible to please. And he's obsessed with doing everything perfectly, hoping to gain favor with God. 
And though he's gaining popularity as a scholar, still he's in anguish and he's driven by works righteousness. Around that time, the early years in the monastery, he's commissioned by Rome to go to, uh, to Rome to represent his monastery in a series of meetings there. And he's real excited about the chance to be in the center of the church's world because for him it's like a dream come true. There he'd be able to see all these great men of God that he heard about. He can be there to uh, experience masses in these famous chapels that he's heard about. He can light some candles and be a part of all that. His hopes were really, really high. Well, this experience, this trip to Rome, was absolutely devastating for him. Because he would sit in on a mass, and the priests were flippant and irreverent, saying all kinds of horrible things during the Mass, because remember, the people attending it can't understand it. But Luther understands it perfectly, and he's horrified. So he's seeing priests with no soul, no relationship with God, living in sin, keeping women in their chambers, no connection with God whatsoever. He's just devastated. So here's this country monk traveling to the epicenter of his religion, and he's shattered to the core. So after this experience, he returns back to Germany where he's posted to the University of Wittenberg. And there he's told to teach a class on the book of Romans. Romans. Now remember how driven he is as a human being. So he determines in order for him to teach this in the best way that he knows how, he decides to teach the students not in Latin, but in their own language. And because this is Wittenberg, he begins to translate the book of Romans directly from the original manuscripts directly into German. And as he's translating, he comes across this phrase that he's always struggled with, this phrase, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. Every time he read that phrase, he just knew that he was doomed because if an, an all-powerful, perfect, holy God would ever look upon the pigsty of humanity, he couldn't imagine how mankind could not be doomed. But in pouring over this in the translating as if for the first time he sees that the righteousness of God is not made known in judgment, but in the cross of Jesus. And then he sees this phrase, as if for the first time, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, say that with me, the righteous shall live by faith, not by works, but by faith. And those words arrested his soul. And suddenly the unthinkable begins to burst forth in his mind. All these things which he's based his religious experience on, the rules, the creeds, the candles, the robes, they all mean nothing, nothing, and he's undone. I mean, this has rocked his world to the core. So during this tumultuous season in his life, what he's experiencing, there was a very common practice happening called the selling of indulgences. This, it's a little complex, but the essence was this. Imagine if God's grace was not given by God to you, but instead it's all given to one man, the Pope. Because the church said that the keys to the kingdom were given from the apostle Peter to the Pope, and now the Pope can give out God's grace to whomever he chooses. And the idea dawns upon the Pope that this just might be the best fundraising opportunity of all time. If he's got all this power... So they determine a way for these indulgences to be purchased, cloaked in religion. So they put out all these religious relics. And these relics might be a, 
you know, a cloth that wiped the brow of Jesus, or the skull of John the Baptist, or a bone from the hand of St. Stephen, or whatever. It might be real, might not, but who's going to question? The church said so. Nobody questions. So the people would be told to pay to view these relics, and they pray, then pray certain prayers on the steps outside the chapel, like a prayer on each step. And the Pope would determine the spiritual benefit of the viewing of each one of these relics being viewed one by one, so the people are asked to pay and then line up to see these relics, believing that these are increasing their hopes of one day going to heaven. And there are thousands and thousands of these relics across the continent. And at Wittenberg alone, there were 19,000 relics just in the collection of Frederick the Wise. There are countless. So the big question is, would the people buy into this? Would they do it? Would a peasant spend what little money they had on a lofty notion like that? And if they did, what would the church do with all the money? Any ideas? Maybe some construction projects could be helped along the way. There's some pretty impressive structures that got built during that time. Okay. A man by the name of John Tetzel was appointed by the Pope to be in charge of the selling of indulgences in creative ways. So he would go from city to city with great pomp and showmanship, and he would lay it on thick. We've got a little video on what this looks like. Tonight, and only tonight, seek the Lord while he is near. 
So the, the local prince or priest or leader who owns the collection of relics will collaborate with John Tetzel and the Pope and split the take. And you can imagine what power this gave people. I mean, if I had what you need to look at in order for you to get credit towards heaven, well, the answer is pretty simple. Work it over. Pay up. Pay up. Heaven, your eternity depends on this. So now, a junior monk with a fresh revelation from God watches all this taking place. The greed, the manipulation, the lies, the extortion of people just wanting to go to heaven, and they accept this as their only hope. They don't have another, they don't know another way. Well, Martin Luther has seen enough. So he gathers his thoughts and he goes on the attack against the biggest power in the world. He blasts the practice of selling indulgences. He attacks it in writing, in detail. And he posts it in the city center for everybody to see. He proclaims that there's absolutely no power in relics. He denounces the selling of indulgences as wickedness. There is no power in relics, he says. None. There's no use to pay for anything, he says. He goes on, he says, if the Pope has the power to unlock God's grace and then sells it for money, he himself is the instrument of Satan. Well, that didn't go over that way. <laughs> the backlash is horrifying. Whole city is in an uproar, and then it travels. The word gets from that city to the next city, and then to the next. <coughs> and it just so happened that there was a brand new invention called the printing press, which was located where? In Germany. So now this little 95-point love note that he wrote to the Pope is being printed and distributed all over civilization. And the fear that this created is unimaginable. All hell broke loose. He's standing there shaking his fist at a power structure that's been in place longer than anyone around had been alive. There's almost nothing in our modern context that can parallel this separately. But things did not go smoothly for Martin Luther. He was called into an 18-day council session where they demanded that he take it all back and recant. And these quotes are taken from that council session, uh, this exchange between the cardinal that was in charge there and Luther, this country monk from Germany. Cardinal says, the Pope is the sole interpreter of Scripture. He is above counsel. He is above Scripture. He is above everything in the church. Luther says, His Holiness the Pope abuses Scripture. I deny publicly here and now that the Pope is above Scripture. This is like a little man going up and poking Don Corleone in the chest. <laughs> so Luther is summoned to be burned at the stake. But he's able to get some protection from Frederick the Wise and instead there's a debate that gets scheduled against his accusers. But when that day comes and he arrives there, he discovers that the deck has been stacked against him. The decision had already been made. He was going to have to recant, take it all back or die. And so he's standing there alone before this council to answer for his proclamation. And they say to him, Rome has found that your writings are heretical. Recant or die. His response? Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. <coughs> Sounds better in German. Right? What does it say? How's it say in German? It says, Here you stand, you can under Martin. God help me. Sounds better in German. <laughs> oh, God. I spent three weeks.
dead by eating cake. <laughs> but think about this. Here I stand. I mean, this whole council is lined. There's a hundred people that are there against Martin Luther who sits there alone. Recant or die. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amazing. Martin Luther lived 20 more years doing a lot of writing on faith, articles of faith, theology, and writing songs. He wrote songs that are still being sung in churches today. A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther. So these five solas are written and were developed and uh, presented in response to very specific per perversions by the corrupt Roman Catholic Church of that day. The Roman Church taught that the foundation for faith and for practice was a combination of the scriptures and sacred tradition and the teachings of the Pope. But Luther and Reformers said, no, no, our foundation is sola scriptura, scripture alone. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and spirit. Sola scriptura. The Catholic Church of that day taught that we're saved through a combination of God's grace and the merits that we accumulate through penance and good works and the merits that the saints before us also accumulate. The Reformers responded, no, sola gratia. Grace alone. Ephesians 2.9 says it like this. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, <coughs> So that no one can boast. Beyond that, the Catholic Church of that day taught that we're justified by faith and the works that we produce. The reformers responded, no, no. Sola fide. We're saved by grace. I mean, through faith alone. Romans 4.5 puts it this way. To the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Their faith <coughs> is credited as righteousness. Beyond that, the Catholic Church of that day taught that we're saved by the merits of Christ and the saints, and that we approach God through Christ, through the saints, through Mary, who all pray and intercede for us. The Reformers responded, no, no. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Beyond that, the Catholic Church of that day adhered to what Martin Luther called the theology of glory, which, which the glory for a sinner could be attributed partly to Jesus, partly to Mary and the saints, partly to the sinner himself. The Reformers responded, no, no. The only true gospel is that which gives all glory to God, as is taught in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. For the glory of God. So, the five souls, they clarify the foundational truths that our faith is built upon. The absolute centrality of grace, faith, Jesus, scriptures, and doing it all for God's glory and no one else. And over the next five weeks, we'll all be a little bit better grounded in why these are so foundational and critical, not just for Christianity at large, but for you and for me. What is true out there must be true in here. 